Thank you, Danny. That's a great song. Great song. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, last week we started chapter 12 with uh, an introduction on this great chapter. I, I like to do that. As I told you with each chapter, I think it helps put everything into a context for you that as I build through the chapter, you pretty much already know um, where I'm going and it helps you get it all together. Uh, personally, I think chapter 12 is probably the greatest key chapter in the Bible on why God's people uh, give God uh, their life and why some don't. I think it's an incredible chapter. Um, it was a chapter that many years ago in my life I detailed out and really took some time. You know, the, the, the fallacy today of, of giving God your soul but hanging on to your own life. And uh, that's so prevalent today, but I think in this great chapter that you see what really makes the difference. Uh, I began to show you the key areas in Paul's life that uh, made him the man for God that he was. And we looked at a lot of background stuff on Paul, and, and uh, I, I told you how important it, it was for us as God's people to understand the life of Paul. The Bible's very clear on it when it talks about that you know, the men and the women in the Bible, the circumstances, the situation, even the children many times are great pictures for us. And I, I think you'll understand that a, a little better after today uh, than maybe you already do. We see Paul uh, as the greatest Christian, as I told you last week, that ever lived. Yet, uh, if I, I guarantee you, if he were alive today, uh, we would find that many of God's people who love to read his books and, and, and pastors who preach uh, on, uh, uh, on his life would, would, would have problems with Paul. I'm sure that uh, he would be criticized uh, by God's people today. You know, we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and we talk about how much he means to us and in every church service today that we have, um, you know, is built around Christ and, and what they preach about Christ and, and all of those things that go along with it. But, you know, it's a dying truth that if Christ showed up today and started uh, his earthly ministry the second time, I guarantee you that, that most of the churches would have a problem with him very quickly. And uh, you would find out that most churches, when they teach what they teach and believe what they believe, are so contrary to what Christ and the Bible teaches that, that very quickly we would have a problem. That's one of the reasons why that he's not coming back the second time like he did the first time. I mean, I don't know if you've ever analyzed it or not, but, you know, uh, if Christ came back the second time like he came back the first time, uh, he'd have the same problems. Just in the modern day thing, the charismatics couldn't stand him because Jesus never spoke in tongues. I mean, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, you know, wouldn't have anything to do with him. The Mormons couldn't have anything to do with him. I mean, you just go down the list. Not many people could have anything to do with him. And I, I guarantee you, if Christ showed up the second time like he did the first time, they'd crucify him probably and uh, very quickly. So he's not coming back the second time like he did the first time. See? Second time he comes, he's going to take charge. And uh, when he takes charge, everybody will understand who he is and what he is. But Paul's the same way. There were people that would be against him. They would say that Paul was too radical. They would say that he thinks he knows everything. They would, people that would accuse him of not being tolerant of other people, belief. Some would say he was loud, rude, obnoxious. Real Christians always have driven phony Christians up the wall. It's just the way it is. And Paul was certainly the legitimate real Christian. And it wouldn't take long to separate the real deal from the phony deal if he showed up today or if somebody really just studies his books that he wrote and shows you exactly what we have. Now, last week I told you that uh, we need to see uh, what made Paul uh, what and who he was. I, I want you to understand uh, what gave him the courage that he had to face all of his opposition, and boy, he had some. I want you to see and understand what gave him his ability to stay the course through all of his adversity that he faced. You remember I gave you a couple of really important aspects in his life that are really good for your own personal study. First one we talked about was that greatest study, I think, that I ever took in the Bible for my own life personally, and that is the seven people in the Bible that God changed their name, Paul being one of them. 
And I showed you last week how that is a monumental major thing to, to look at and get and study in the Bible, the day God changed these men's name. And I showed you that five of them, their names were changed in a great way that showed a different level and a closer relationship and a point in their life where they, they never looked back. And then two of them were uh, where God changed their name in a very negative aspect. And uh, so it's, it's one of the greatest studies that, that I ever took, and it's, um, I guarantee you, if you get into it and lay it out, and the thing you want to watch and the thing you want to look for, and I did this, you want to look at what point in each one of these, the five guys who did good, and ladies too, you want to look at, at what point, at where were they at, what they had went through, and then at that moment in time, what brought them to the next level, and God said, I'm going to change your name. It's an incredible study. Then I showed you uh, the five characteristics that at some point uh, we need to have in our lives. And uh, we, see them, uh, we see them in Paul's life, and we see them almost in everybody's life that uh, really did anything for God. And, and I talked about how that I understand that spiritual growth is a process. It's not something that you're going to get uh, right after you get saved. Uh, I, you, you may struggle with some things. It may take, it take some people quicker or longer than others. But at the end of the day, this is where you want to get. The five concepts of, of a life with God in the Bible that will simply change your life. And remember I told you about hearing the inaudible, hearing things that other people can't hear from God, seeing the invisible, seeing circumstances the way God sees them, touching the intangible, believing the infallible. And then I rounded it all off with simply all those things bring to the place in your life where you do the impossible. Paul did the impossible. Every one of these five people that you look at that God changed their name, when God changed their name, he called them to do the impossible. And it's an incredible, incredible study. Uh, Paul's life can be summed up in these five areas, and in time this should be our goal too. Uh, but it takes uh, getting through the entanglements of this old world that, that, that hold us up. Now today I want to show you the event that happened in Paul's life. That was the final phase of him uh, leaving this old world uh, in the dust. And if you ever get down what I'm going to talk about today, and I know some of you won't, uh, and I know some of you probably will, uh, but if you'll get this down and see this and, uh, and, and, and get a handle on it in your own life, because something transpired in his life after he was saved that changed his life completely uh, and in every way. Now, I want to begin reading here in chapter 12. I want to read the first six verses here, and then we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll begin to go down through this. Here's what he says. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knoweth. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God knoweth, how that he was caught up to, into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one uh, will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine affirmities. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. Now, Father, Lord, there's so much in this great chapter that, that I want my people to see and understand. There's so much here that I think that, that, that will change all of us and help us be better. But, Lord, I, I, I don't have the ability to, to lay it all out. I don't have the wherewithal to be able to uh, pour it into people's hearts and their minds. But Holy Spirit of God, I ask you today to be able to take the Word of God and take this message and to do what only you can do, and that is to touch the hearts and the lives of these, your people. And Lord, we'll be careful, and we'll give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it, amen. Now, I have been given you on every chapter in the book of 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 2, a chapter heading. And in this particular chapter, we see the humility of the minister. Uh, staying humble in, in the ministry and uh, doing the things that God calls you to do. And we'll see that develop as we come on down through here. Now, in this chapter, Paul begins to tell us what happened to him at one point in his life. And this was the game changer for him. This is the thing that, that, uh, that really uh, uh, did it all. 
This is the event that solidified his purpose, his focus, and his perspective. Remember, I talked about those three things all through our last couple of messages. Verse 2 says, uh, he, he tells us this event took place about 14 years ago. Now, if you go through the chronology in the Bible, that would put it back around Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. People who really know the Bible and uh, really uh, they, they put this event in his life just for uh, your, you know, your note in your Bible. They put this, uh, they put this event in his Bible uh, probably when he was uh, dragged out of the city of Lystra and they stoned him with stones and left him for dead. This is where most people put it, and even though for sure you can't know that, it's probably, it's probably true and probably where it happened. You'll also notice in verse 2 that he says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. This passage has been a little confusing for people because they wonder who this man he's talking about. He's talking about himself. And the thing you've got to remember here that this event that he's going to tell us about was a life-changing event. I would say that everything that was in Paul's life and everything that happened to Paul from this point on would go back to here. And this is an incredible time in his life. And it, it was such a revelation from the Lord and such a great thing in his life that honestly, he was the only guy on planet Earth up to this point that this had happened to. I mean, if he wanted to, he could have got a big bus and put a banner on the side and toured all around the world and people would have paid to hear him say it. He could have gloried in the fact that uh, I'm the only one that this happened to and God spoke directly to me. But that's not Paul. So what he uses here when he says, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, he's using what we call in English grammar, third person singular. He's talking about himself, but he's putting it in a way that he's not taking the glory for himself. You want to put that note in there. Uh, verse 6, if you see it, it says, For though I would desire the glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. His humility begins to come out here. He's very, 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 very careful all through his life never to take the glory for what God is doing in his life. And that in itself is a great lesson. Now, verse 3 says, it says there in verse 3, rather in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. What he's saying here is, he says, I don't know if I actually died and went up to heaven or I was just unconscious and God brought the vision down here to me. He, he wasn't sure. doesn't really matter, but he's saying, whether in the body or out of the body, in the body would be he's still alive and God bringing it to him. Out of the body would be he's, he's dead and God took him up and then God brought him back. And he says, I really don't know uh, what state I was in when God gave this to me. Verse, uh, verse 2 says he was taken up to the third heaven. Uh, now, that's a great thing. And a lot of people have a tough time with that. I, when I, years ago, when I used to do a lot of preaching around. I would get into churches where they didn't know much about the Bible. And I'd always use little things to try to, you know, perk their attention and get them to think. And uh, I would, I would I, I'd talk about the fact that the Bible says there's three heavens and then look at them and ask them, if you're saved, which one do you go to when you die? And you'd see some of the most blankest, terrified scares you ever, stares you ever saw in your life. Truth of the matter is, uh, there, the, the word heaven, we know in the Bible, is defined as an expanse of space. And when it talks about three heavens, it's not talking about three levels of heaven. It's not talking about when you get to heaven, you got three stories on it. It's talking about an expanse. The first heaven is our atmosphere. The second heaven is outer space. And the third heaven is where God's throne is, and that's where Paul was taken up to. You'll find that all detailed out for you if you want to get into it or ask it on Thursday night at some point, but the key passage is Psalms 148. Another interesting thing here is in verse 4, and, and you want to mark this. He says he was caught up to the third heaven to paradise. Now, that's very important because that shows you that, as the book of Ephesians says, when Christ went down into the center of the earth while the three days he was dead, and the Bible says he led captivity captive, those people were in paradise. Paradise is another name for Abraham's bosom. Remember the thief on the cross when he was getting ready to die over there in Luke chapter 23, verse 43? And uh, he said, Lord, remember me when I come into thy kingdom. What did Jesus say? He says, today thou shalt be with me in where? Paradise. Paradise. See, where was he going? Center of the earth. Now that verse shows you that, uh, that paradise is no longer down there. 
That, that's the great thing about the Bible. It shows you uh, every aspect of truth about itself. Where over here in Luke, we read that paradise is in the center of the earth. Now, after the resurrection, when Paul is caught up there, he clearly tells us paradise is up there in the third heaven. That kind of stuff is invaluable in putting it into your Bible and just knowing how the mechanics of the Bible work will say that. Paul was taken by God up to the third heaven, and he was shown the plan and the majesty of God. This is what happened to his life. This is exactly what happened. He saw and experienced and heard what nobody else had ever done up to this point in time. He saw, uh, he was shown things unspeakable, the Bible says. He heard things that was not lawful for a man to hear or utter or talk about, he says. Yet God took Paul and showed him these things that no other man had ever seen or heard. Verse 1 says, and it's a great verse, it says, I will come to visions and revelation of the Lord. That's what changed him. Now, I want to talk about that for just a moment before we move on through here. He saw the glory of God's throne. He saw the power of God's majesty. God revealed to him what he had revealed to no man up to this point in time. And Paul called it a vision of the revelation of the Lord. Now, we would ask ourselves, what did God show him? Well, keep in mind, I want you to first understand how this thing works and what God showed him because it's going to come back to you and me here in just a moment. What did God show him? What did God reveal to him? Well, we know that Paul is the apostle to the church. We also know that uh, up to this point, the Bible says in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, that the concept of the church had never been real to no man. In fact, Romans 16 says that God, it was a secret that God kept and a mystery that God kept from the beginning of the world. He had never told anybody about the concept of the church. It wasn't until the book of Ephesians is written that we're told that the church was a mystery. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It wasn't until Paul wrote that book that he actually revealed what the church really was. So what you have here, you you have to begin to see what God revealed to him uh, was the aspect of the church. What God gave him was the piece of the puzzle that nobody had the body of Christ. And at the same time, you got to remember this. Paul was a doctor of the law. Paul knew the Old Testament better than anybody knew the Old Testament. This is one of the reasons why God picked him. He was trained in Acts chapter 22 by one of the greatest legal scholars of his day. When I say legal, I mean in the law of the Old Testament. He knew it backwards and forward. He knew everything about it. He had to have that because he had to deal with the Jews. And so God picked the man who had a historical background, this is very important, historical background in his own nation who understood the religion of his nation, the law. And then God took a man who had impeccable credentials, who understood every jot and tittle and everything about the law, and then he took that guy and chose that guy to be the Gentile, uh, to be the apostle to the Gentile and gave him the mystery of the church. You know what God did? God picked a man, Paul, who had, who had all of the Old Testament better than anybody, and then he took him and he gave him on the complete scale of the Bible because up to this point, all they had was the Old Testament and what God was doing with Israel. Nobody knew a thing about the church. And what God did is took him up and chose him to reveal the church to the Gentile world and what God did up there by giving the revelations and the glory of God and showing him the majesty, God gave him the biggest piece of the puzzle that was ever in the history of the world, the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, now revealed to the world through one man. Boy, it's no wonder once you understand that why the devil wanted to stop it. It's no wonder why the devil put the uh, adversity. But I want to say, that's the mechanics of it. God, and I told you when we come through on New Year's Eve, remember the two people groups that God has? how he he enacts his plan through the two people groups. In the Old Testament, he enacts it through the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, he brings it about through the body of Christ. Well, the Old Testament now is about to end. Israel is in apostasy and in captivity. God is getting ready to turn his attention to the Gentiles and bring the gospel to them. You saw glimpses of this is in the gospel if you're paying attention. 
So now God needs a man to be able to do that. But he needs a special man. He needs a man who understands both passages. He, under needs a, he needs a man who understands what God is doing with an Old Testament nation of Israel and a man then who can understand what God is doing with a church that can put both of them together. And that man was Paul. Now, do you see the importance of you and me to ever really know the Bible and what God's doing to have both of those down? Do you better understand now why I did what I did on New Year's Eve to bring you through that and to show you that so you could grasp that? Because that's what Paul had to have. But that alone was not what changed him, though that would have changed a lot of people. Uh, personally, I, don't, I, I think that was great, and I think that that was an, an, an incredible thing, and I think that that in itself would, would just put somebody over the top. But I don't really believe that that alone was what changed him. And I say that based on my own life and my own testimony when God changed my name. And I know what I'm about to say will go right over some of your heads, some of you. I, I know it will. Uh, but I hope some of you will catch it. It wasn't just God giving him God's piece of the puzzle for the plan to put it all together. I believe it was also the fact that God showed him his personal part in this plan. I don't think it was just God showing him, this is what I'm going to do. That would have been overwhelming and been amazing, but then God stopped and looked at him and said, Paul, this is how you are going to fulfill it and fit in for, him, for me. I think that was the final, final thing. He saw himself in that plan, and his life was never the same. I mean, it would have been one thing if God just said, here's what I'm going to do, but he didn't stop there. He said, no, here's what I'm going to do, and here's what I want you to do in it. You realize that's what God wants to do with you? You realize that a thing that will change your life and the thing that did change my life was not just seeing the over... Though I, I was overwhelmed with the Bible. I was overwhelmed with the majesty of what that book was. I mean, I remember reading it and seeing it and all the different types and all the different pictures and all this and all that and how it fit into history. And it overwhelmed me. But I'll be honest with you, it wasn't until I seen that God put me in that plan that changed my life. And I'm telling you, I believe that's what it was with Paul. He now lived his life setting his affections on things above and not on the things of this world. <clears throat> he now lived a life not entangling himself with the affairs of this life. Do you realize, do you stop and realize, uh, you've got to. I know you, cause you, nobody in here is this dumb. You're all smart. Do you realize the stupid, little, petty, absolutely worthless things that knock us off the course? I mean, if it was your house burning down, your dog being shot, your car blowing up, you know, that would be one thing. But we allow the absolute most ridiculous, petty, worthless things that get into our world. And you know why that is? Because we don't understand where we're at in this plan that God has enacted. That's why. Now, he lives his life by saying things like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's now like Moses that I talked about last week who lived his life after God changed uh, all the things in his life. He didn't change his name, but boy, he changed everything in his life. But Moses got to the point where he had these five things in his life and Moses lived his life, as the Bible says, enduring as seeing him who was invisible. Now Paul comes to be like Abraham, like I told you last week, that had the ability. God did change his name and his wife. And now he has the ability to call those things that are not as though they were. Uh, that, that's an incredible thing. From this point on, he has one goal, Paul does. He has one purpose. He has one focus and he has one perspective. And that is to fulfill God's plan and purpose for his life. I, I want to show you something today. I, I want this to be a, a very rewarding time for you today. I want you to leave here today uh, to re with, your, with your cup full. Not that I don't try to fill it up, but this, it'll be so easy today. I hope you brought a big bucket because there's a lot for you to fill up today. But I, I, in the Bible, in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, anyhow, there's two men who show us this great concept for our lives. 
and they're two men that uh, I've talked about it before, uh, never in, in one and the other together like I am today, but uh, there's two men in the Bible. Both of these men do something that no one else in all the Bible ever accomplished, and it what makes them such a, such a great study together. And they set the standard for us. Both are an exceptional uh, a type of and a picture of what we should be as Christians in the Bible. Now, the first man I want to talk about uh, is the Apostle John. And one of the greatest types of the child of God in the New Testament Christian world that you're ever going to find in the Bible. Paul, uh, John is one of the most, if, I think John is the most, uh, John and Paul are the two most unique people in the Bible. When God reached down and got Paul, he got him with a basis of understanding the Old Testament and showed him the biggest piece of the puzzle to put it all together. But when God used John, you got to remember that John didn't write his books of the Bible till at the end, around 85, 90 A.D. And John is the only man in the Bible. He even trumps Paul on this. John is the only man in the Bible that when he sits down to write, he has the complete Bible in front of him. He has everything. He has everything. He's the last author of the Bible. He writes Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation, all after 80 AD. Everything else is written at that point. When he sits down at the table and God tells him to write, he has everything in front of him, Old Testament and New Testament. That's, that's quite impressive. That's why his writings are so impressive. Remember I showed you uh, a last couple of weeks ago, I showed you that there were seven churches in the book of Revelation. And then I showed you that there were uh, seven churches that Paul wrote to. And I showed you how that the seven churches in Revelation line up to the seven churches that Paul wrote to. Well, watch this. Watch this. In the Old Testament, there's five wisdom books. You have Psalms, you have Job, you have Proverbs, you have Ecclesiastes, and you have the Song of Solomon. And in the New Testament, the two prevalent writers of the New Testament are John and Paul. Paul writes 13 books, 14 if you count Hebrews. John writes five. We know them in our New Testament as the Gospel of John. 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Now, I'm telling you something. In the New Testament, the five books that John writes will match up to the five wisdom books in the Old Testament. Just as sure as I'm standing here. These five books that John writes form the wisdom books of the New Testament. The Gospel of John will match up the Psalms, 1 John will match up the Song of Solomon. I mean, when you start to look at Psalms and, and match it up to the Gospel of John, you know what the theme is of the Gospel of John? It's the deity of Christ. It's who Christ is. That's the wisdom that you and I have. Remember a couple of weeks ago, I showed you the Laodicean church, and I said, took you to Colossians, and I said the first chapter is redefining who Christ is. Why? Because the Laodicean church has lost who Christ is. So the first book of wisdom in your New Testament by John is who Christ is, the Son of God, Gospel of John. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. When you come to 1 John, you'll find that that matches up to the Song of Solomon. Most people that teach the epistle of 1 John will tell you the theme of 1 John is love. How many times I've heard that over the years. When a man starts to talk like that, I know two things about him. One, he hasn't read the book. He's reading somebody else's material. And two, he doesn't know very much about the Bible. You see, the first thing I know is that 1 John lines up the Song of Solomon. And I know about Song of Solomon is about my intimate relationship with the Lord. We know that. We did a study on it one New Year's. So when I come to the, the book of 1 John, I don't, find, uh, I, don't, I don't find the theme love. I find five little chapters in that book. 26 times he says to know, to know, to know, to know the Lord, to know this. Now we know. You should know. 26 times he's talking about it. You know what that does for me? 
It shows me that the theme of that book is not love. The theme of that book is knowing. We got a bunch of Christians today that claim they love God, but they don't know God. We got a bunch of Christians that say, well, I love Jesus, but you don't know him. We fall in love with people and fall out of love with people so quickly today that God's people do the same thing with Christ. That's why people come to church, they get saved, you never see them again. They fell in on Sunday morning and they fell out by Sunday night. You see, to know him is to love him. And we're famous as American Christians for loving things we don't know. I mean, we're famous for Christians. You've heard me ran on it many, many times. We love inanimate objects. We love things that can't love us back. I love my car. Give it a big old kiss, kiss on the hood. Wait till the motor cools down so you don't burn your lips. I love this house. I love this dress. I love this suit. I love this. I love this ring. I love this hat. I love this everything. We spend so much time loving things that cannot love us back. And we carry that right into our Christianity. So you have first John is to know him. There's your relationship with Song of Solomon. Third John, or excuse me, second John and third John will both deal with the nation of Israel. And where second John will line up with Ecclesiastes, third John will line up to the book of, Pro, uh, book of Proverbs. In second John, you have the elect lady. That's Israel. In, in third John, you have a wise man and a foolish man. That's the book of Proverbs. And then Revelation is the book of Job, the capstone of the Bible. What does it deal with? It deals, both, both books deal with the same thing, the suffering of Israel. See that thing? Now I'm going to tell you something. John is a type of the New Testament Christian. I want you to get that. He writes five books that are our wisdom books as New Testament Christians. As a New Testament Christian, these five books or make up the wisdom that we need to have. We need to know who Christ is. We need to know that a relationship is based on loving him, is based on knowing him. We need to know God's relationship still to the nation of Israel, and then we need to know the whole picture of the capstone of the Bible and the suffering of the nation of Israel. That's what we need to know. And these five books form the New Testament wisdom books. You ever see this? John had a special relationship with Christ. You ever lay it out in the Bible? I've laid it out a few times for you on Thursday night. First of all, you had 12 apostles picked by God to do the work of God. Right out of the chute, one of them was a phony, wasn't it? Judas. And then what was left, you find when you study it out, uh, out of the rest that was left, uh, out of the rest of, of the 11 that was left, three men had a greater experience with Christ than, than the rest of them. And their name is Peter, James, and John. They pop up all the time. Mount Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. When the raising of Laura's daughter, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John experience greater things with the Lord than the rest of the apostles do. I tell you right now, and I, I got a great message on it. Well, I think it's great. You probably wouldn't. I got a message on it that basically talks about that those 12 apostles are a picture of Christianity. You think everybody here this morning is saved? You think you get a group of Christians together and they're all saved? You're always going to have a phony in the bunch. And just like that, the rest of you who are saved this morning, how come some of the other ones have more power with God and God does more things with them than he does with you? See that thing? Peter, James, and John. But then we take it all the way down to the end. When push comes to shove and the crucifixion took place, they all forsook him. Peter denies him around the fire, put those other few cuss words in to make it work. James is gone. The only one that goes all the way to the end is the Apostle John. One out of 12. One out of 12. One out of 12. The rest of them, you can't find them anywhere. But John is right at the feet of Jesus at the cross. He goes all the way. I don't know if you ever caught this or not. If you ever got this or not at all, at the, uh, uh, at the crucifixion in John chapter 19, when G uh, John's standing down here at his feet, Jesus looks down and sees his mother, Mary, the mother of God. He sees her. She wasn't the mother of God. He sees his mother. She's a type of the nation of Israel. He looks at John, type of the church, and he gives his mother to John. That's a picture of the New Testament, us being the caretakers of the nation of Israel. Oh, I'm telling you, he's a great study. He's a great study. 
You ever notice in John 13, 23, John is the only apostle of all the 12 that Jesus says he loved. Now, I know he loved them all. But it would be safe to say that Jesus had a special love for John. I think it would be safe to say that Jesus has a special love for some of you over some of your other ones. You say, now, I, I don't know about that. Why? How can you say that, that, John, uh, that Jesus had a special love for John? It's simple, because John had a special love for Jesus. I mean, you don't, you, you don't think that you can just throw God under the bus the way we do sometimes, and, and he just hangs on like the dawning girlfriend who wants to follow you, whatever, and you can do whatever you want to do to her? I guarantee you that God has special relationships over. It's not that he doesn't want to. It's not that it's not on him. It's the fact that you don't want it. At the Last Supper, John chapter 13. I've studied this guy out probably more, him and Paul, more than any other people in the Bible because I saw at a glance, I mean, we're talking years ago, how important this was. And there in John chapter 13, when they're having the Last Supper, and Jesus says to the crowd, the 12 apostles that are there, he says to them, he says, one of you tonight is going to betray me. You look for yourself, every one of them, every one of them. Every one of those guys look at him and say, Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? Lord, is it me? John looks around the corner and says, Lord, who is it? He didn't know who it was, but he knew it wasn't going to be him. That's a special relationship. It really is. John has a special love and relationship with Christ, just as many of you do. John, too, he never quit. He never let adversity keep him back. And John, his crowning moment, his crowning moment, John does something, and here's the key, that no other man in the Bible does. And it's an incredible picture of what we should be and what we should be doing. In John chapter 13, verse 23, the Bible tells us that John leans over and lays his head on the breast of Jesus, and he actually hears the heartbeat of God. He actually hears God manifested in the flesh now, the heartbeat of God. Getting God's heart as a child of God. We study the book of Song of Solomon. Now, I'm telling you the parallels. It's incredible. We go back to the book of Song of Solomon. And chapter 2 is probably the most intimate chapter in the Song of Solomon about our relationship with the Lord. What do you find down in chapter 2, verse 6, when Jesus is talking about the bride, uh, us, and we're talking back and forth about him, and it's a great picture on the rapture of the church. What does he say in verse 6 of chapter 2? He says, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace me. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand doth embrace. That's a picture of somebody leaning over and listening to the heartbeat of God. That's a picture of John. That's where we ought to be. This was the reason John was taken up to the second coming and shown all the church age, what was past, what was present, and what was future in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 10, and chapter 1, verse 19. God revealed all that he had done and what he was going to do and what he, what he would do in eternity. And he wants to reveal it to you and to me, just like he revealed it to John. I, I thought it was interesting. Paul said, I've come to the revelation of Jesus Christ. John said, I'm going to write the revelation of Jesus Christ. See that thing? John had the greatest privilege of anybody in the Bible. He got to write the capstone of the Word of God that covered everything that God had done, where God was at, and where God was going. And now he knows, and now he understands the order of events that will come to pass based on what has already happened, the cycle of history. We ought to have that. We ought to know that. We ought to be in the exact same place John was. We ought to have the heartbeat of God in our life that we understand where God has been, where God is at, and where God is going. That's our first guy. Our second guy is the guy who's the subject of our sermon today, the Apostle Paul. Where John gets the heartbeat of God, you need to see this, Paul gets the mind of God. See that? And those are the exact two things we got to have. And John represents a child of God who hears the heartbeat of God is never the same again. 
Paul represents the child of God who gets the other side of it, who gets the mind of God, and he's never the same again. And my dear friend, when you get God's heart typified by John and you get God's mind typified what happened to Paul, nothing will ever stop you the rest of your life. And God will change your name in the process. Paul not only sees God's master plan, he not only gets the mind of God, but he sees himself within that plan. And I, I, I got to ask you, when you do that, how do you walk away from that? How do you walk away from that? I, I heard on the news this week, What was it? Because you about fell over and when the big lottery number came out, almost $400 million? Because remember you ran in the bedroom and checked all your lottery tickets? <laughs> How much? $600 million. Well, you could buy Steve some bones with that, couldn't you? $600 million. Now, would I be presumptuous saying that if any one of you won that $600 million, would it not change your life? Yes. <laughs> your tithes would change our life. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> In fact, this would be a time for you to live by faith, and you live off 10% and give the rest to God, my son. <laughs> $600 million. <laughs> What's that after taxes, Chris? Approximately. Bob? $385 million is what she got. She got $385 million. Would that change your life? Amen. Change your life? Yours? <laughs> we'll have an invitation here in a moment for all liars whose pants are on fire this morning. <laughs> it changed my life. And you know what, Chris? It's Chris. You know what? Kevin, you may not ever spend a dime of it, and you may give it all away. But even in doing all that, it changed your whole life. Well, the moment you came home with $385 million, you'd have more friends than you ever had in your life. <laughs> now my favorite phrase would come into play. I have more friends than I can afford. <laughs> you'd find out aunts and uncles and cousins that you never knew existed. You would, your life would change. I mean, your life would change just writing a tax check for it. Your life would change the moment you come back and you say, I want to put it in a bank. And, and you got to now, you, who would put $385 million in one bank? Now you got to have, if you put a million dollars in each bank, you need 385 banks. <laughs> then you know what's going to come to you? Every investor on the planet is going to find who you are. It's going to change your life. Not, not before you spend a dime of it. That's not even before you spend a dime. And then you know what? You're going to say, well, I don't need anything. And then you'll be amazed how much stuff you find you need. <laughs> I make my point by saying this. $385 million would change everybody's life. How come God gave us a book that per page is worth $100 billion in gold bullion? And it doesn't change anybody's life. Now, see how I set you up for that? That's good preaching. <laughs> I got a book that each page is $100 billion of gold. You got it in your lap. Doesn't do a thing for us. You see, when John heard the heartbeat of God, he cashed in. When God took Paul up and showed him the abundance of the revelation of God, and he saw not just the plan of God, not just that he got the biggest piece of the puzzle, but he saw God has me in this plan. Whew. Oh, boy. Woo-hoo. Count me in. That's the book God gave you. That's the book God gave you. And his life, like John's life, like our life, will never be the same. Now, here's the key I want you to get today. Only one other person can accomplish these two things. The only other person who can accomplish these two things that John accomplished and Paul accomplished 
is a New Testament born again child of God with a complete revelation of God's heart and God's mind, the Word of God. We're the only ones that can do it. That's why they're types and models of what we should be. The day in your life when you come to the vision and revelation of the Lord through that book that God gave you, it will do for you what it did for both John and Paul. It'll take you up to the third heaven and show you God's master plan, and it'll bring you back down and lay your head on the breast of Jesus to hear where God's heartbeat is today. And you and I, through the Word of God that He has given us, the more sure word of prophecy, the absolute standard of life and the issues of life, the complete revelation of God to man, the mind of Christ and the heartbeat of God. Hey, listen, if the Bible is Christ and God, and it most certainly is, Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, it says, Lo, I come in the volume of a book. He did. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. If that's true, then let me ask you a question. And I understand that many of you are new Christians, and I'm not even asking you this question, though you need to find the answer out, but I'm not putting you on the spot today. But let me ask you, if that book is Christ, and that book is God's heartbeat, and that book is God's mind, where would you turn to it today to find God's heart in that book? Do you know? I mean, what is the number one thing on God's heart? Is it salvation? Is it the souls of men? Is it you? Is it the church? Do you even know? Well, I'll tell you this. It's none of the above. But there is a specific place in that Bible where you can go and that heartbeat is pounding and it shows you exactly where his heart is. You see, when you invest your life in that supernatural book, then that book invests its supernatural qualities into your life. And you become supernatural in your relationship with Christ. That in time, through a process, it will bring you to the place in your life where you see the visions and the revelation of the Lord that Paul saw, and you'll have God's heartbeat. And you'll never be the same again. You'll never be the same again. I heard a tragic story this week, which I'm sure you all heard, and, and trust me, what I'm about to say is no disrespect to to the tragedy because it's certainly a tragedy. We, we've had terrible tornadoes and hurricanes this, this year. Oklahoma, I'm not even sure, is around anymore. It's been terrible. But last week, I, I got caught up in the story about the three uh, storm chasers that were killed. What a terrible thing that is. I mean, they all were, looked like they were great guys, good guys, and all of those things. And I, This is nothing derogatory toward them or what they were doing. But I was listening to the people talk about that, and it, it just struck me from, a, from, from my own personal view of things. Somebody was saying that, that one of the older guys who was killed in the tornado uh, had been a storm chaser. Uh, and that's all he did for 30 years. He was a storm chaser for 30 years. And that was his life. And I'm, I'm sorry he died. I'm sure he was a good man, and I wished he would have survived. But it struck me, personally, just between me and the Lord, you know, God speaking to me, it struck me. I hope I don't have to go to heaven knowing that I wasted my life tracing storms when I had a book that gave me the heartbeat of God and the mind of God to change the world. And that's no disrespect to him, but it's just the way I looked at it. I mean... I, I go to the gym every morning just to keep, and I'm, I'm not in any way, shape, or form, I'm in a, I'm in a state of maintenance. I'm not, in a body, I'm not building anything. I'm just, I'm just in a state of maintenance. I'm just trying to be like the King James Bible, preserved to some degree. And I got a lot of friends up there. I meet them, and, you know, they know I'm a preacher. We talk back and forth. And I, I have a lot of nice people up there. And, and, I, and I, but, you know, you learn from wherever you go, whatever you do. And uh, there's a couple of guys up there. So, in fact, I saw Matt up there the other day. Matt, I walked down the steps, and Matt come out, and I thought, Matt's coming to the gym. I got a workout buddy. Matt was just there to wait to go pick up his car. He had to ride with somebody. But uh, it was good to see you, Matt. It was good to have you there. But, I, but and Matt, Matt will know what I'm talking about here. I watch these guys work out. I mean, they're, why do you have to get so big that you can't scratch the back of your neck? 
Is there a reason for that? Well, I'm telling you, man, I watch these guys bulk up. I mean, and they're, and they're huge. I mean, the funniest thing in the world is a guy with little hips like that and shoulders like that. I mean, if I wanted to take you down, I would never hit you in the shoulders. I'd just cut you in half with your waist with my little pocket knife. It could just, you know, no time. I, I've never understood it. But I watch these guys. Uh, and I, and I, I, I get in there and get out, you know. I'm there 45 minutes. I got my routine. I know what I need to do. I know, you know, I know, you know, I, I know what I got to do. I watch these guys. There, one guy told me he comes five, come to the gym five times a day. And they're over there. And, in, and, and, and I, 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 I never, I, I never, I, I got to confess some stupid stuff to you. I did, when I first started, I never knew why they put mirrors around that place. Now I know. <laughs> Does anybody here get off watching yourself in the mirror at anything? I mean, you, 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 and everything they're doing, they're, they're, they're just, and then it's the leg, you know, and then they're down, going on the track, you know. I mean, I thought it was dance moves they were practicing or something, you know. You know what I thought to myself? If any one of these guys would spend half the time in the Bible and the Word of God that they do making their flesh look good, they changed the world. Uh, you know, and you got to wonder, how do people miss that? How do people miss the fact that the book God gave us is the mind of Christ and the heartbeat of God, and it will change everything about us? How do we get so out of whack that we actually think the source of every problem we have, this flesh, pumping it up, pampering it, oiling it, shaving it, Getting to the place where you are some golden bronze Genesis chapter 6 son of God. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm telling you, when you come to the vision and revelation of that book and you hear God's heart and God's mind, uh, you get a better perspective. I think all Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I, Isaiah says, it's one of the greatest passages in the Bible. He says, I saw the Lord lifted up and all of his holy train. He actually saw God on his throne. You know the next words out of his mouth? Woe is me. You see, seeing who God really is puts it in perspective of who we really are. That book, God's mind, God's heart will change who you are and God will change your name. It will allow you and me to see God's grand master plan. That's what I did New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve was nothing more than a small glimpse of what God must have showed Paul. And mine was such a ridiculously feeble attempt. But the concept is the same. I took that night, and I've had some of you, as stupid as it was, as mundane as it was, as, as, as ungodly as it was, in all the things in a physical sense that it couldn't even approach anything that God could do. Some of you still talk about, boy, that really turned the light on for me. Well, what must it have done for Paul? And you see, that's what God wants to do. But God just doesn't want to show you the grand, grandioso plan. God wants to allow you to see yourself in that grandioso plan. And when you do, nothing, I mean nothing, will ever stop you. You'll learn just like Paul did and John did that this physical world, that you'll leave it and you'll dwell in the supernatural world by a supernatural book. And in your life, whatever you read from that point on, whether it be books, magazines, or news, newspapers, whatever you see, whether it be TV, new broadcasts, or documentaries, whatever conversations you have with your friends, with your family, or people that you meet, it will always be illuminated and lighted by what the Word of God has shown you, how the whole thing works. And now you'll understand. I say you'll understand it all. <laughs> you'll understand a lot of it how everything in life relates back to God's master plan, including you and me. Now, that's why Paul lived his life the way that he did. 
And that's why John was chosen to write the books that he wrote, and finally the book of Revelation. One is taken up to the third heaven and sees the mind of God. The other one is taken to the second coming of Christ, and he, he sees God's heart. That's why he never quit. That's why he never gave up, both of them, in spite of all that they faced. He not only saw the bigger picture of, of life, but he saw the bigger picture of his life. The reason why God saved him, the purpose for his existence, never losing his focus or his perspective. This is why, as I said a couple of weeks ago in our message on holding the line, that it takes a special kind of person to do the ministry and the work of God today. Because in John's life, you know, John, tradition says John was boiled in oil on the Isle of Patmos after and after he wrote the book of Revelation. He had been on the Isle of Patmos for sure. He'd been exiled there by one of the Roman emperors. And however he died, it was a horrible death, I'm sure. And we have already seen what Paul had went through. And this is why I said when I preached that message of holding the line, that it takes a special kind of person to do what God wants to be done today because we have to decide that we're going to pay the price that comes with it. We're going to have to, before we pay that price, sit down and count the cost before we move forward. And we have to get to the place in our lives where we we hear what nobody else hears. We see what nobody else sees. We touch the things that nobody else can. We build a supernatural relationship with a supernatural book that in time brings you to a crowning point of your life as a Christian to do the things that nobody else can do. I, I, I told you last week, I see a glimmer of this in so many of you. I really do. So many of you have, have come to the point where you're almost there. I'm not saying you don't have some things you got to learn. And after you get there, I'm not saying you won't have some more things you have to learn. But what I, it's, I've told you before, it's what I look for in people. And, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I told you that we're going to, when we start uh, the book of Proverbs here in a couple, uh, about a, maybe a month or so, a couple of months, whenever we get to it, I'm going to take a little time and do a mini camp on leadership. And the reason why I want to do that is I want to set the stage for when we get into the greatest book, uh, in the Bible that really deals with all the issues of life. And on top of that, if you look around you, we probably got, and we got a lot of people on vacation this morning, we probably got 20 or 30 brand new people that have come into our church in the last, just the last couple of weeks. And, and I'm always looking for people who have the ability to be leaders. I, I, I'll look through a crowd and, I, and I'm going to talk to you about it when we get into that, into that, into that session. But I'm always looking for people who, who have the ability to be what God wants them to be. I mean, I love everybody. I, I, I hate no one. I'm mad at nobody. But I realize that it takes a special kind of person today to stand and to make a stand uh, up to the world. It does. It does. There's so many pressures. It takes someone who is flexible to circumstance. It takes someone who is adaptable to the way God changes things. It takes somebody who's compatible with other people in the ministry and the thing. And it certainly takes somebody that is durable. It takes someone who will take and make a stand and will work to get to the point in their life like Paul and like John, like Abraham, Moses, and all the rest where you suddenly leave this world behind. And if ever was a time that you should be able to see what I've been preaching to you about the last 10 years, uh, it's today in Christianity. That the choices we make can and certainly will kill us that the association and the friends that we hang on to will, will drag us down and bring us right into the mixed multitude. You see, all these things and a hundred thousand more are out there for simply four reasons. And I'll leave you with this. One, the devil wants to stop you. He knows better than you do what potential you have. I see the potential in you and it discourages me when I don't see it develop. He sees it in a greater way than I do, and it just makes him the happiest guy in the world when you don't develop it. He wants to stop you. He wants to keep you entangled and embroiled in the goofy little things of this world that don't mean a thing that always keeps us off track. The who's who and who did what to me today. The second thing, he wants you to get you to lose your real purpose of why God saved you. He wants you to give God your soul, but he wants you to keep your own life. The third thing is to get you to lose our focus. 
And I told you before that the focus is why God saved you and put you where he did. It's no accident that you're here. No accident you're in Kansas City. God orchestrated the events in everybody's life. If we believe what the Bible says and who God is, then it stands the reason. And our church is what it claims to be. Then it's no accident you're here. God has orchestrated everything in your life to put you to a place because he must have saw something in you. That's powerful. Too bad you can't see it in yourself. And then the fourth thing, to get us to lose or never get the right perspective of how you do the work of the ministry. God has something for each one of us. Why I put you here. He saw something in you. I see it in many of you. He sees it in all of you. He could have brought you... He could have put you in any dead-headed church on this planet. He could have put you in a church that doesn't even know where there is a Bible. He could have put you in a place where they didn't teach anything about the Bible. He didn't. He put you here. And there's a reason for that. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed here. Father, we do thank you and praise you for